Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Running Mates. I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. How's it going? Once again, this is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. This episode, we're tackling the shit show that was 1972. If you haven't listened to our 1968 episode, I would give it a listen, because there will be some recurring characters this time. Let's set the stage, Mike. Sure. It's 1972. Vietnam War is raging on. Nixon had a secret plan to end the war, but it's still going. Fun fact about this election is the 26th Amendment was ratified, so 18-year-olds are now allowed to vote nationwide. Democrats think this is going to help them, but you'll see. <laughs> the Watergate break-in has, of course, happened by the time of the election. It's not really a major news story yet, and Nixon's kind of gone on this week-long visit to China the beginning of 1972. He's opening up relations there, and he's achieved a detente with the Soviet Union by signing some arms limitation. Economy's strong. An end of the war is near, and Nixon has had a wave of these foreign policy successes. This looks to be a blowout, Mike, but why don't you tell us what happens on the Republican side? Yeah, so the Republican primary, uh, as you might assume based on how well things are going for Nixon and his crew, is pretty, pretty boring. He's very popular in company, faced little opposition, and he's really building off successes in the foreign policy realm. Even though, you know, Vietnam's still going on, he's opened up Chinese substitute talent. The Soviets, you know, the threat of nuclear war is no longer as imminent as it seemed in the 60s. His, there are two exceptions, though, two people who were not big fans of him. One of them is Pete McCloskey, who was a California congressman who ran on a pro-peace and anti-Vietnam platform in the primary. He actually won 19.8% of the vote in New Hampshire primary. Um, so he did have some support, and he did receive one vote at the convention, which was from a delegate from New Mexico, which means he technically came in second place. The other opponent was John Ashbrook, who's a congressman from Ohio, and as opposed to McCloskey, Ashbrook thought that Nixon was being too soft on the communists. He had been in Nixon's support in 68, but he thought he became too friendly to China and the Soviet Union. He ran on a slogan called No Left Turns, and his logo was like a leftward-facing arrow with a circle with a dash through it. Um, he <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> he believed Nixon had turned left on issues like not, not, not only foreign policy, but also the budget deficit and affirmative action, the EPA, and wage and price controls. Um, we actually won him support from some prominent conservatives like William F. Buckley Jr., sort of the voice of the conservative movement, of course, the founder of National Review, and actually a candidate for mayor of New York at one time. Point. Hmm. Ashbrook did win 9.8% of the vote in New Hampshire. He won 9% of Florida and 10% in California, but he did not receive any convention votes. So it's interesting because I think we're going to have a lot of talk about that. Because in, in, in 1968, there was kind of this like Stop Nixon movement, mm -hmm. which is very um, 2016, if you will, mm -hmm. for Trump. And it's kind of the same thing. You have like two kind of nobodies trying to stop right. him, but like it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Democratic side, you kind of have the same thing. So 1972, you've got Ted Kennedy. He's expected to run for president, but he doesn't. Probably should have. <laughs> Alabama Governor George Wallace, once again, who ran as an independent and segregationist in the 1968 election, has decided to join the Democrats and run in their primary. He does okay in the South. Surprise, surprise. And the Democrats' candidate in 1968, Hubert Humphrey, also decides to run again because, you know, he thinks he'll win this time or something. However, the Democrats' nominee for VP last year, and now a recurring character on this show, Edmund Muskie, has become the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. However, 
the Canuck letter comes out, which you described it well last time, Mike. It's like it like makes him look very bad. He basically wrote a le- well an alleged letter that basically said he he hated Canadians. And Maine is like the only state in the union where French is also an official language because so many French Canadians live in Maine. Yeah, yeah. It was later revealed to be uh, a forgery by Nixon's staff, but it made him look not so good, um, and so he kind of tanked in New Hampshire and his campaign collapsed. Enter South Dakota Senator George McGovern, who, you may recall, designed the Democrats' new primary system following Hmm. their disastrous 1968 primary. He's running as a very anti-war, very progressive candidate, and he kind of gets momentum after Muskie kind of shits the bed in New Hampshire. He actually has a very strong strategy in the primary, though. He focuses on caucuses instead of primaries, and he's got this campaign manager, the very talented Gary Hart. Hart, of course, would go on to become senator from Colorado and run for president himself years later. This superior strategy and the fact that McGovern had been behind the structuring of this entire system seems to work and carries him to the nomination. This is not without controversy, and a Stop McGovern movement also also emerges. There's a lot of these Stop Stop movements in this era. <laughs> Interesting about this one is the Stop McGovern movement gets a lot of support from Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter, and there were a lot of fights over the Democratic platform. McGovern would later recognize what he had done to the party in this era by saying, you know, I, I, I opened the doors of the Democratic Party, and 20 million people walked out. Mm. So that sets the stage. Let's talk about the running mates. Yeah. We'll start the, with the Republican, because he's the incumbent. I was going to say, also, if you look at all these stop movements, they can all agree on who they want to stop. They can never agree on who they want to stop them. Yes. I mean, it's very... <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of how it's been uh, yes. in 2016, too? Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, it was a pretty uneventful convention for the Republicans. Vice President Spiro Agnew was renominated by acclamation, but there were rumblings that he would be replaced specifically Moders won Nixon to pick New York governor and leader of the liberal wing of the party, Nelson Rockefeller, mm-hmm. um, while Nixon himself preferred Treasury Secretary John Connolly, who was also the former governor of Texas and the man sitting next to Kennedy when he was shot. I'm sure both sides decided that doing so would possibly alienate Agnew's conservative base of supporters and just went with the status quo. So some drama. More drama than you'd think from an incumbent. Yeah, but but no, no provable drama. Right. Like, there's, right. There's, there's no record of it, basically. Right. All right, I hope you're sitting down, because I got a wild story for you on the Democratic side. Okay, McGovern's first choice is Ted Kennedy, who turned him down. Then he decided to go to Walter Mondale, who also turns him down. Senator from Minnesota, right? Yes. Then he goes to former vice president and then presidential candidate Hubert Humphrey. Then he goes to Abe Ribicoff, Birch Bay, and yes, then Edmund Muskie, all of whom also turn him down. But McGovern feels he needs someone like Kennedy who can kind of capture that spirit. So he goes to the mayor of Boston, Kevin White. Ted Kennedy, who was the original person to recommend to McGovern that he should take White, changed his mind and pulled his support so he couldn't go with Kevin White. Then McGovern considered and reached out to Sergeant Shriver, who we talked a lot about last episode and who was ambassador to France um, and previously the director of the Peace Corps. But (laughs) Shriver was out of town and they couldn't get him on the phone. So... They couldn't make the offer. McGovern scraps and finally finds Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, who also declines, but suggests Missouri Senator Thomas Eagleton, who says yes. Finally, because of this ordeal, there was very little vetting done on Eagleton, who was a relative unknown nationally. This kind of reminds me of Sarah Palin in 2008, Mm -hmm. um, except I think people actually like John McCain. I don't know. (laughs) So they finally find this guy. (laughs) 
<laughs> they, get, they get to the convention. Delegates to the convention rebel because no one knew who this guy was, and it kind of becomes a circus. They start nominating tons of VP choices. Over 70 candidates receive votes. Nixon Attorney General John Mitchell's wife gets a vote. Mao Zedong gets a vote. Um, the fictional character Archie Bunker gets a vote. Nick Galifianakis, a U.S. congressman and the uncle of Zach, also got one vote. Because of this shenanigan, by 1.40 in the morning, the vote was finalized and Eagleton had actually finally secured a majority. But this pushed the candidates' accepted speeches way beyond prime time because it's almost 2 in the morning, so they didn't get any media coverage and there was no convention bounce for the Democrats. But wait, just when you think it can't get any worse... Just days after the convention, it's revealed that Eagleton had been under treatment for depression and had undergone electric shock therapy. You know, one of those, like, olden days treatments. People still do it. Do they? Carrie Fisher swore by it. Oh, wow. Um, Well, she's dead. (laughs) (laughs) He's also rumored to have a drinking problem. So McGovern was kind of put in this tight spot. He initially, like, totally stood by Eagleton, stand-up guy, but the party and the media sort of told him you need to drop him. This looked really bad because it made it look like McGovern made bad decisions, but if he removed him, it made him look like he admitted failure. However, this episode kind of prompts the development of like shortlists for running mates, which you hear a lot about kind of in, in the modern era. It's like who was on Hillary's shortlist, who was on Obama's shortlist, and this kind of extensive background checking that candidates should probably be doing. McGovern does drop Eagleton from the ticket. He goes and reaches out to almost everyone he'd already made the offer to, who all still say no, but he finally does get Sergeant Shriver on the phone and accepts this very impromptu last-minute ticket after the convention. You know, not that there was necessarily a lot of thought behind it. It kind of seems more like a, we will literally take any living, breathing (laughs) Democrat, dear God, at this point. Um, great. (laughs) There was no vice presidential debate. McGovern would run an incredibly progressive platform of immediately ending the war and guaranteeing a minimum income nationwide. He kind of unintentionally became known as this candidate of, quote, amnesty, abortion, and acid, despite having relatively conservative stances on all compared to our modern day. You want to tell us uh, how that election goes, Mike? Didn't go well for George <laughs> McGovern. Uh, it was an a absolute blowout. Nixon swept every single state except Massachusetts. He won 18 million more votes than McGovern did, which remains the largest margin of victory in a presidential election for the popular vote. And this prompted the popular bumper sticker, Don't Blame Me, I'm from Massachusetts, that proliferated as Nixon's sort of profile got worse. Of course, investigations following the election on Watergate as a result of Nixon's totally unnecessary when you think about it, election meddling would lean to Nixon's resignation as a president in a couple years' time. Yeah, not great. No. So we sort of talked about this. The more, I feel like the more research I did on this election, and of course we talked about 1968 last time, I think it draws me to like a lot of parallels between 2016 and 2020. You know, in in 68, 2016, Democrats nominate sort of an insider, a very prominent role in the last administration. They make like a head smart pick. Mm-hmm. But then they lose the election kind of narrowly to a controversial nominee with a big stop them movement within their own party. So the next election, the party, you know, in 72 or in 2020, the party, the Democratic Party kind of overreacts and decides to tack way to the left, kind of making like a instead of a head choice, a heart choice, if you will. And then it goes like terribly. So we'll see what happens in 2020. <laughs> but currently Bernie is surging. Plus, you got, like, the Canuck letter and Watergate by the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some election meddling going on, which I don't want to say anything, but, like, there's some parallels here. Right, right. 
Uh, you want to tell us what happened to Agnew after? <laughs> yeah, so after the elected Agnew resigned the vice presidency in 1973 due to a corruption investigation relating to bribery-related activities to his time in the Baltimore County government and extending into his time as vice president. Forced to cover legal bills, he borrowed money from his friend Frank Sinatra and went off into shame and little public life. He would be replaced by House Minority Leader Gerald Ford, who of course would ascend to the presidency after Nixon resigned due to Watergate on August 9, 1974 he would select Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president. Shriver, he would run for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1976, but it never panned out, and he more or less left politics after that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, want to hear my fun fact about Gerald Ford? Always. It's so, uh, apparently, when the, the like night he was selected as, like, Nixon called him and told him he wanted to be vice president, like, his... He had promised Betty Ford that he was going to retire from politics, and then, this, of course, would extend his career in politics. And she was very upset. And he, he, according to Gerald Ford's son, he told Betty Ford, he was like, "Don't worry, honey. The dub vice president doesn't do anything." And then, of course, he would end up being president. So, and the only president never to have been elected to either president or vice president. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now you know everything that really happened. But let's get to the main act. Just to reiterate, this is how this works. Mike was asked to come to the table with five alternative picks for McGovern's running mate. And since Nixon is an incumbent, we're going to talk about just two alternative picks for 1972 because we talked about who Nixon could have picked in 1968. And then we'll unpack, you know, whether they're good picks, bad picks, etc. Let's start with the Democrats. Mike, um, you want to kick us off with your number five? Sure, number five. I have the aforementioned Pete McCloskey, California congressman, anti-war congressman, pro-peace, did not like Nixon very much. Kind of a Hail Mary pick for McGovern, considering he is a Republican and not a Democrat. But, you know, maybe the idea is that you pull, you know, there was a stop Nixon movement, so people don't love Nixon, or at least as much as one might think, although he's pretty popular now. So maybe he pulls in some disaffected Republicans. Klosk is also a Korean War vet, so even though he is very anti-war, he's not sort of like the liberal... He doesn't have the image of a liberal intellectual that McGovern does. He actually did volunteer to fight in Vietnam, but then decided against it. He called for the repeal of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And despite his anti-war beliefs, was actually elected in a district with a voter base that favored going to war by a margin of two to... or, or a ratio, rather, of two to one. Mm. So he's got some, like, anti-communist bona fides... He knows you show you can win in like a pro-war environment. He's from a really big state. The thing with McGovern is that like he lost literally every state by Massachusetts, so it's very hard to play that like. Well, if you just pick this person from this state, it would have gone well. So I didn't really think like, oh, I, I I looked at like the margins of victory and stuff, but I mostly just picked sort of like I didn't put as much thought into that as I did when I was picking Humphrey because it was more like oh you could look at like new jersey or ohio or whatever but, right yeah i i agree my thought with kind of all my picks as well like as opposed to 1968 is just kind of minimizing damage is like yeah. <laughs> mcgovern is not gonna win this isn't gonna go well he's already had one vp drop <laughs> mm-hmm. he just needs kind of he kind of needs like what mccain needed is like mccain's pick wasn't really gonna make the difference but he thought he could have like a game changer yeah about pete mccloskey like that look game changer <laughs> <laughs> About Pete McCloskey. Mm-hmm. So I, it's weird that he remained a Republican until 2007. Yes. It's weird that he endorsed Reagan in 1968. Yes. There, I was doing some some reading about him recently, and apparently there was a lot of tension between him and McGovern in, New, in the New Hampshire primary. Yes, I read about that. Because, yeah. like, McCloskey's running as a Republican, and McGovern's running as a Democrat, but they're both vying for independence mm-hmm. in a 
open primary, yeah. so the independents had to choose which one they wanted to vote in. Mm-hmm. I think the thing about McCloskey is he kind of reminds me of when people, like, two years ago were talking about Hickenlooper Kasich, mm-hmm. like 2020. Oh, yeah, totally. And, 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 the, and this is kind of, like, a thing I feel like we both probably picked a lot of this year. So we went with, like, former Republicans turned Democrats and former Democrats turned Republicans. Mm-hmm. I just don't... It never happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, I agree. That's um, why he's number five and not number one. Yeah, yeah. I think if there were going to be any time to do it, it would be in times like this, though, yeah. where it's very divisive. <laughs> Nixon's going to win 49 mm-hmm. states. Yeah. Maybe show some unity i don't know the thing that goes on to the, if, if you typed on, if you searched on twitter biden romney right after romney announced he was going to vote to impeach trump you uh, you got a lot of results well, we'll see what happens in our, <laughs> in our 2020 episode mike yeah all right my number five pick is hale boggs mm. um he's a congressman from uh, louisiana and he's the majority leader in the house at this time my thinking here michael mm-hmm. is democrats have actually been kind of doing well other than nixon getting elected um, they did okay in the midterms. And even considering the blowout this, that this election would be, they only lost one seat in the House, which is crazy. Nixon sweeps 49 states by huge margins, and they only like have one loss in the sure. House. He's been House Majority Whip for the last decade. He served on the Warren Commission. He's been able to push through a lot of the Great Society stuff. And he's gone after the FBI, which kind of made him no friend of Nixon's. Weird thing about him... <laughs> Um, so he's majority leader in October of 1972. If he's not the vice presidential pick, what happened to him is a month before the election, he's campaigning for Alaska rep Begich, and he disappears. <laughs> he has never been found and may still be out there um, hiding in Alaska, but the House had to declare him dead. Like, this is the sitting majority leader, and the House has to declare him dead um, because they both won re-election posthumously. Anyway, if he's a vice presidential pick, that presumably doesn't happen. It's just a weird story. <laughs> yes. He's eligible to run. Louisiana didn't put in its dual candidacy ban uh, until 1978. But I think he's like an establishment, like, long-term pick. He kind of counters this, like, insurgent, hippy-dippy McGovern. Hmm. Are you aware that he signed the Southern Manifesto? I, I am. <laughs> I am. But, okay. you know, we're trying to balance this ticket. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Are you... Uh, I just think balancing with a segregationist even in 1972 is, like, not a good idea. And that's why he's my number five pick, Mike. <laughs> McGovern, but, like, what if? What if McGovern can win just, like, a few of those racists from the South, and then he, like, yeah, I don't gets know. a couple just, thousand it, more votes? It just seems totally, like, incongruous. <laughs> like, I, like, how do you sell that ticket? It's like, well, here's, like, your liberal savior, but if he dies, you're going to get a guy who doesn't think black people and white people should go to the same schools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, he's disappeared, so we don't That's know. True. <laughs> That's true. That's um, true. And maybe, maybe, maybe he softened as, as the years went by. I don't know. All this stuff is from... He voted against the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The, the Democrats are in a period of, 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 of tumult at this yes. time, Mike. Yeah. And, and there's... I have a lot of picks later on that are very like, the Democratic Party has changed. Yeah. And yeah. it's changing, and we're in this weird period. Mm-hmm. I just... He's kind of like... Because Ford picks Bob Dole in 76. Yes. Like, it's the, the idea of, like, nominating the, the party's, like, leader. Right. Um, or, like, it, Bob sure. Dole becomes the nominee in 96 for the Republicans. Like, mm-hmm. the idea of kind of nominating, like, a party congressional leader right, has right. kind of faded. Mm-hmm. But I sort of think if there were any time to do it, maybe it's now. <laughs> sure, I get that. All right, let's go to number four, Mike. All right, I had John Lindsay, mayor of New York City. If you're a Mad Men fan, he's also the employer of... Betty's second husband. Francis. No, his first name's Francis. His last name's Francis. Whatever. It's not important. Anyway, 
He uh, was also a congressman from New York from 1959-1965, where he had a liberal voting record. In fact, he was endorsed by the Liberal Party of New York for mayor when he ran. He's credited with preventing riots after the MLK assassination. And he did, he, so he was originally a Republican, and then in, I believe, 71, he changed to a Democrat. And he actually did, he ran in the primary. He ran for, for the Democratic nomination. Mm. His primary campaign actually went pretty badly. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think sort of my pick of Lindsay, it's kind of a more logical version of the McCloskey pick, where it's like, oh, here's a guy who was a Republican. He became disaffected by the direction that Nixon was taking the party. Things were pretty fraught, but, you know, he prevented riots. He did all this good stuff. So, yeah, this is why it, it's a compromise pick. It's like he's been on both sides of the aisle. He can he can, he can can forge consensus or something like that. And he has a record of doing that. Um, he has his own issues, but we can talk about those. Yeah, he's my number two pick. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think he's good. If we're if we're going with if we're going with this extend well, I'm going with this extended uh, McGovern equals Bernie narrative. I kind of think John Lindsay is like a Bernie Bloomberg ticket, <laughs> which is never going to happen. But like they're both like ostensibly liberal. Uh, they have this like northeastern appeal. But Lindsay's kind of like you know he went from Republican to Democrat, mm. um, kind of like Bloomberg did. Mm-hmm. Wasn't McGovern a Republican as a youth? Oh, I don't know. I think it was. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I, I know vice presidential picks, Mike, not presidential <laughs> picks. Yeah, I, I, I think he's a good pick. I picked him for number two, so. Right. I, I do think the narrative of Republican to Democrat sells well here in an mm-hmm. era where, like, the Republican Party is changing. Nixon is very, very, like, very popular with Republicans. And Democrats need to show that they are not losing touch with the entire nation mm-hmm. by nominating George McGovern. Mm-hmm. John Lindsay lost his Republican primary for mayor in 1969. Mm-hmm. It's like my one, my one, like thing that like made right. me raise an eyebrow. But then he becomes a Democrat. But like, is that a little opportunistic? He still wins like the mayorship though. Yeah, yeah. Is what's crazy. But yeah, I think he's good. Yeah, he's got like the problems. Like, I'll do some self-fitting. Is that like? He, like, he completely botched the New York blizzard of, like, 1969. Like, the, the city was just not prepared for all this. <laughs> the Nor'easter? <laughs> yeah, the Nor'easter of 1969. There's that. Like, he literally, like, there were, like, people from the city who were heckling him on his, like, primary campaign spots in, like, 71 or 72 or whatever. Prominent New York politicians were like, this guy has to come back and actually, like, deal with what's going on in the city. The police in 1970 was, like, when the big, like, Frank Serpico, like, police corruption thing broke. The city was not in actually a very good place. Like, he kept it from getting worse, but the city still was not in, like, a great place around the The city, like, came to hate him later on, right? yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But if he's VP, maybe right. they don't. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's true. Yeah. My number four pick is Eugene McCarthy, mm. um, who's a former senator from Minnesota. He was in the House for a long time. He's sort of an establishment guy, but he's in the, and he's in the Senate for over a decade. He ran for the presidency in 1968 and 1972. He's very anti-war. He's kind of anti-Johnson. He debated Joseph McCarthy of which there's no relation in the 50s and he, he he's like about as democratic as they come mm-hmm. like for this era he's very he like loves Adlai Stevenson he's one of the few candidates who sought the presidency in 72 that McGovern does not ask to be vice president and Minnesota's the closest state so you know it's still probably going to go for Nixon but at least McCarthy might just win two states instead of just the one <laughs> right I kind of see McCarthy as and I, I'm, I'm really stretching this narrative but it's like a Bernie Brown pick like if it's Sanders and then Sherrod Brown in 2020 okay uh, is he's like he's populist and like but he's very he's establishment unlike 
McGovern kind of is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I so I, I had McCarthy as my number three. There aren't enough Democrats left. That's <laughs> no, the problem. Yeah, is yeah. We're going to have a lot of crossover. I, I think of him as kind of like the proto-McGovern. Like, this is just like doubling down on what won you the primary. Right. Like, we're going full peace. We're going full Midwest. You know, we're, we're giving the kids what they want, basically. And, you know, I, I kind of advocated that strategy, I think, in our prior episode. Which, you know, like, why not? Like, yeah. you, you're down so big. Like, why not just, like, do the thing? You're right, in the Minnesota thing also. He had, like, a big following in 68. You were feeling like you were voters. And also, just, like, think about the campaign sign opportunities you had. You could just have one giant MC, and on the top you have <laughs> Govern, and on the bottom you have Carthy. Like, that's genius marketing right there. That looks so cool. I, I did not think of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. It's a very Irish ticket. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, sp- <laughs> speaking of which, my... Uh, my mother's maiden name is McGovern, and the story goes is that when during when she was a, a child, that a, around this time, when other my grandfather was making reservations at a restaurant, he would say that he was George McGovern's brother, and they would give him like a really nice table or like seat him early. My oh, family so that worked well for him. Yeah, no, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My family's they, they they jokingly refer to him as Uncle George. My family's never met George McGovern. We have no relation to him, but yeah. <laughs> Um, Fun fact. <laughs> that's, that's funny. I expect them to like spit in your food, no. <laughs> judging by how this election's going to go. Yeah. Um, McCarthy did have a meeting with Che Guevara. <laughs> I, I read about this. That's some oppo research. Later on, he endorses Reagan in 1980. Isn't huh. that weird? That is weird. It's kind of weird. The Mitt Romney of his time. No, I'm just kidding. You had you had him as your number three as well. I did. Yeah. All right. So I'll move on to my number three. I like that campaign sign thing, though. That's, right? That's clever. <laughs> um, that, should be the, that should be the cover of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so my number three, I went with Mo Udall, um, who's rep from Arizona, because I'm really going for these house picks, but he's special. He's, like, independent. He's got this independent streak in the Democrats. He's, like, a big environmentalist, conservationist, opponent of the Vietnam War, which I guess is kind of, you kind of have to be if you're a Democrat at this yeah, point. Yeah, But he's, like, a bit of a, like, a, a rabble-rouser inside the House. Mm. He challenged the sitting speaker and majority leader, prompts some tension um, with him. It's uh, in the House seniority system. He literally writes the book on, like, how to be a congressman, teaches a class to the freshman members and like, how to operate in the House. He becomes, like, a key sponsor of the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971. This is the year before the election, which required campaign finance reports, which Nixon then violates. My, like, point with him is he's very, like, honest and straightforward, but he also, like, despite his independence, he kind of has this more lengthy record of working inside the system to change it. Mm. He's neither, like, this pure liberal East Coast earner, and he's not this Southern Democrat. He's kind of indicative of where the Democrats will go in 40 years' time. Mm. He's sort of like, uh, you know, Arizona, he's a maverick. (laughs) (laughs) I just like the idea of, like, he's this guy fighting for, like, campaign truth, honesty, changing Congress... And then Nixon, like, Watergates it up. And so mm. he's kind of this truth seeker. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a good pick. Like, yeah, I, I don't really have a lot of oppo to go on this. Other than that, like, you know, he was kind of a, a little bit of a newbie. Um, yeah. But no, I, I think it's a good pick. I like the idea of just, like, you have this sort of regional divide in the Democrats, and you just pick a region that people just don't think about that much, and you go with that. It's interesting how, like, people don't really pick Congress people that much on tickets anymore. Yeah. I think after this election, I believe the only people to actually have Congress people on the tickets would be Mondale Ferraro and then Romney and Ryan. <laughs> Neither of those really worked out. R.I.P. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's a good pick. I really, I really don't have much to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. On to my number two. Uh, let's, let's do it. 
I went with Ralph Yarborough, senator from Texas. He was in the Senate for, for, for a good bit, at least two terms. He was elected in, yeah, 56. He was an early opponent of the Southern Manifesto, so he had a good record on civil rights. He was actually one of three Southern senators to vote for all three of the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and Thurgood Marshall's confirmation of the Supreme Court. He's a World War II vet, so he's got that going for him. His, his famous line is, let's put the jam on the lower shelf so the little people can reach it. So that kind of goes along with McGovern's universal basic income platform, basically. He supported Johnson's domestic agenda, but he was very critical of Vietnam. Uh, he did lose the, the, the 1970 Senate primary to Lloyd Benson, but that's because Benson actually ran to his right. He did run in 72 for the other Texas Senate seat, but lost to John Tower, who was your number one pick from Nixon's VP last episode. But that might not be a factor if he gets picked as the VP candidate, because he wouldn't be running for Senate, probably. Mm. He was also two cars behind Kennedy's limousine in Dallas during the assassination. Fun fact about him, in the next 64 Senate election, he defeated George H.W. Bush. You may have heard of him. I, I, I think he can be just kind of like a bridge between sort of like the traditional New Deal Democrats and the McCarthy and McGovern generation. Mm. He, he sort of represents sort of like, you know, the kind of politician that people voted for a lot in like the 40s, basically. And people can associate with the Democratic Party. And he's kind of the bridge between that generation and the, the, the more left-leaning one. He's a legit dude. I did not know a lot of about him he seems like a good he seems like a good pick other than like the losing his own primary right, right. Um, that's a little weak but he, he seems like a kind of like righteous guy he seems yeah. like very um kind of doug jonesy yeah yeah, yeah. is mm. like he's very like i don't care i know what's right mm. these are my beliefs yeah i like him you're, you're still on that kennedy assassination I am. theme right? I, well we'll get back to it later <laughs> on you'll see my number two, I had John Lindsay, mm -hmm. who we talked about, Mayor of New York. So, who's your number one, Mike? So, I love this guy. I had never heard of him before this. I love this guy. He's my number one. His name's Terry Sanford, former governor of North Carolina. At the time of the election, he was the president of Duke University. He's this, like, very liberal southern governor. He He's, he's so legit. Okay. So, he expands, like, housing and education in his state while deftly handling, like, race issues. He kind of got elected to governor and was just like, he, he didn't like press the race issue too much. Um, but then he like went around the state and visited like African-American communities and like African-American schools. And he'd, he'd be basically be telling people that like, he'd, he'd be preaching opportunity, but then he realized that like, like unless he actually does something about the issues, like racial issues, like he's not gonna be able to do anything about it. Mm. So he, he, he was big on expanding rights for African-Americans and also on welfare and stuff. It's so much so that like the KKK like hated him and actually burned a cross on the governor mansion's lawn. And in response, he came out, he like inspected the burnt cross and he said, it is a badge of honor to have such hoodlums against you, but it is a mark of shame for the state of North Carolina to have such childish activities going on. So yeah, he and like and like they also threatened like there were the the Christmas I guess there's Christmas parades in North Carolina and they were going to be interracial and the KKK was like threatened to like attack business people who like sponsored it and he he told the KKK to read the Christmas story and the message of goodwill towards all men contained in the Bible and then declared if there are any illegal acts on part of the Ku Klux Klan they will be prosecuted and while he was president of Duke he actually handled sort of student protests really well he took like a very sort of like soft hand on it he just kind of let them do their thing he was very responsive to, to protests by anti-war groups and african-american groups he, he was just he, he handled it all very peacefully and effectively direct quote from wikipedia he strongly opposed con confrontation and a heavy police action which helped diffuse racial tensions one thing that kind of like would make him maybe not as appealing is that uh he did try and get the nixon presidential library built at duke <laughs> so he's maybe a little sympathetic to him but he did also run for the 72 nomination 
And it's Duke, and no one likes Duke. Exactly, (laughs) people already hate it. And so he actually, like, one of the reasons he ran for the 72 nomination was because he hated Wallace so much. He knew Wallace was probably going to go to run, and Mm -hmm. he's like, I want to show people that Southerners are better than Wallace. Yeah, he, he didn't really do that great, but... I don't know. I he just seems like a very legit dude. Um, just like a crusading kind of like a, like a civil rights crusader in a way. Yeah. Kind of like used his position for the betterment of all, and just seems like a rare figure in this time. McGovern lost North Carolina pretty badly. I don't know how much of a change it actually makes, but he he's this very liberal guy, but he's in maybe a bit more of a conservative packaging. And if you can't make a strategic pick just because the map is so far against you, just like go for the best, and this guy seemed like the best. Hmm. I, I take back what I said about Yarbrough. This guy's the Doug Jones. <laughs> like, this guy seems very righteous. Mm-hmm. But I like how he handled the right, plan right. stuff. This is, it's so, I mean, this is kind of, like, the Democratic Party is so weird in the South in this era. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're on the verge of getting, like, totally kicked out of it, of course, mm-hmm. in the decades that are going to come. But, like, they're weirdly righteous in some places and weirdly problematic in others. Mm-hmm. This dude became, like, really liberal later in yeah, life, yeah. right? He, he ended up being elected senator in 86. Yeah, that's a good number one. Right, you, I, I, I'm talked into it. He's probably better than some of my guys. <laughs> um, for my number one, I went with a very similar kind of person, sort of. Um, I went with uh, Jimmy Carter, the governor of Georgia, another Southern guy. I kind of think Jimmy Carter can be the Stacey Abrams in this race. I know. <laughs> I also so he, so he won't get nominated. <laughs> right. He's you know he had this whole stop McGovern movement, which probably isn't going to get him on the ticket. Mm. But he's kind of the hip and cool guy. I know. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Jimmy Carter, but you know he kind of struck a tone. Um, he's like this new fresh face out of Georgia. He's got this cool accent. He's been governor for like a year, but he's already been on the cover of Time magazine as like the New South. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, were they wrong. You know, he's traveled to Latin America already. He supports civil rights, but he's managed to be kind of pragmatic yet progressive in a way so as not to offend his Southern brethren. <laughs> I think he's got spunk and, dare I say, star appeal, Mike. Plus, like, maybe he scares Nixon a little in the South. Probably not. But, like, Nixon isn't from the South. And I think mm-hmm. you and I picked, like, a lot of people from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, Nixon's strategy is very... He's got the Southern strategy in 68, 72. It's like, I, I want to hit Nixon where, like, he pretends... To be, it's like hitting Trump <laughs> where he pretends to be from, right? Yeah. yeah. If you're looking for, like, a contrast to Agnew, I think Carter is the strongest one. Mm-hmm. In that Carter... Like, Agnew is kind of, you know, he's Maryland, he's from the South at the time, I guess, but Carter is, unlike Agnew, he's very clean, mm-hmm. like, he's very, like, fresh. Like, there, there's no corruption here, mm-hmm. right? Is Carter would kind of be a very, like, almost too mm-hmm. clean president. It's mm-hmm. like, it, sort of to his discredit later on in life. Mm-hmm. McGovern's just very weak in the South, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, Mississippi and Georgia would be his two weakest states. Mm-hmm. But if you want to save face and not come off like this northern elitist liberal that McGovern definitely is, put Carter on that ticket. Mm -hmm. I don't think Carter says yes, but if he does, I think that's a good number one. Mm. Yeah, you've talked me into this. And what I think works in his favor is that... Oh, so people, I mean, obviously, so he won in 76, right? So, I mean, obviously he had more of a record then, but the strategy kind of works. And the thing is, like, he, we think of, like, Carter as this kind of, like, uber-liberal dude in some ways, but, like, he was, like, the last Democrat to win, like, certain states in the South. Yeah, I know Clinton did well, yeah. too. Yeah, but yeah. I think part of that is because, like, he's, like, a very... If, if you think, like, oh, McGovern's, like, this liberal intellectual 
should have been a prayer preacher kind of guy like carter's like a literal peanut farmer right um he's an evangelical christian yeah he's very religious and so i think it kind of balances out so not not only does it cut against agony but i also think it balances out sort of like the leftward lean of mcgovern even though again while while also not compromising it right like carter's like a very like he's he's like a liberal internationalist if you will right Mm. he is his whole thing it's like yeah human rights and and all of that and so I, i think he he actually fits in well to that template of a guy who can bring the party forward without scaring away some of their older base right um, you know his lack of experience i think it's like i guess kind of a knock but also agnew had like about the same amount of experience right. in the 68 and so you know who cares that was kind of my <laughs> thought process yeah. is like if you're looking for someone mcgovern's not gonna win no but if he's looking for someone to position himself because this is the point of this podcast against his vice presidential nominee agnew is like carter is great like Agnew's like a slimy guy, mm-hmm. and Carter's like the total opposite of that. He's mm-hmm. not slimy enough, goddammit. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just like the contrast there and the like kind of hitting Nixon for like not actually being from the South. Yeah. And it, yeah, I mean, we both have a lot of Southern picks, so that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Our picks are kind of all over the place in background, though. Yeah. It's like we have governors, we have house reps, senators, mayors, um, mayors. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I think our number one picks are good. Terry Sanford, yeah. that guy's awesome. Right, I should read about him. Yeah. So McGovern, we kind of covered already. He considered Ted Kennedy, Walter Mondale, Hubert Humphrey, Edmund Muskie, Abe Rebikoff, Birch Bay, Larry O'Brien, Reuben Askew, all of whom, of course, turned him down. He also considered Wilbur Mers, Wilbur Mills, the Ways and Means chairman at the time, Kevin White, um, Gaylord Nelson, also turned him down. Uh, let's move over to the quick Republican ticket. Remember, we're just doing two here. <laughs> this is, you know, Nixon's like, you know what? Agnew sucks. Get him out of here. <laughs> Which he did kind of feel. <laughs> yeah. And probably should have taken him off the ticket in hindsight. Right, yeah. I'll, I'll go first. So my number two pick for Nixon is Nelson Rockefeller. Mm. Not very bold, but here we go. Let's say that Nixon has decided to pivot to the more moderate lane of his party, away from those Reaganistas that are kind of amassing in the background. This is the nice, responsible Nixon. He wants to be more like Eisenhower, who, of course, he served under as vice president. He had considered Rockefeller in 1968, but they're not from the same state anymore. Nixon now lives in California. And, you know, Nixon's maybe learned that he can't resent and eschew all these East Coast elites after all. Plus, Rockefeller gets chosen as Ford's vice president, in the next four years anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of clearly the safe party consensus pick. Mm-hmm. Plus, maybe he appeals to that northern wealthy socialite Republican that McGovern, <laughs> I guess. I like. I, I don't know. He's appealing to Republicans in the like one area of the country that maybe kind of likes McGovern. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think Nixon particularly likes Rockefeller. Right. But this is a world in which Nixon has decided that he wants to be a consensus Republican instead mm-hmm. of a new face of the Republican. I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I So I didn't have him in my picks because we only had two picks, and if I had picked Rockefeller, we would have had the same two people, and yeah. I wanted to make, make it a little more <laughs> exciting. Um, yeah, it's not like a terrible... Uh, Yes, it makes lots of logical sense. I, I think you're right. I don't think Nixon particularly liked Rockefeller, yeah. so I don't really see it happening in that regard. But I can I can almost see a situation where like the heat gets on Agnew, party leaders come to Nixon, they say, "Hey, look, man, you got you got to make a compromise here." Um, I can see him doing it, and it, it kind of it is it, it's kind of like an olive branch. It maybe sets up Rockefeller to like run in '76. 
If only. If he really felt like it. Or, I mean, I guess it's also to Rockefeller to ascend to the presidency after <laughs> Nixon resigns. And then maybe Rockefeller picks Ford as his VP. Maybe we just get, like, this weird reverse history thing going on. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I it, it makes sense. You know, we're still in the era of sort of, like, the two wings of each party. And you're just kind of, like, bringing them together on one ticket seems like a, a fine idea. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, what about your number two? Okay, so mine, this is kind of a long shot, and I just picked it, because why not? I picked Henry Martin Scoop Jackson, senator from Washington. Uh, so he is a Democrat, so let, let, let's get out of the way real quick. He's pretty liberal when it comes to civil rights, human rights, and safeguarding the environment, but he is a hawk. He is just like a, like a very much a hawk. He's basically the proto-neoconservative. He cannot stand communism or totalitarianism in general, but specifically communism. Hates them all. He, he did run for the nomination in 72. On the Democratic side. On the Democratic side. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, look, I, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I picked it... I say it'd be kind of like, speaking of game change, if you watch the movie and I guess read the book too, they talk about how McCain kind of considered Lieberman, who was in the same vein, mm. was domestically pretty liberal. The foreign policy-wise was more of a hawk. You know, I, I just figure if you really just want to, like, twist the knife in the government the Democrats, you pick one of their own, you make them look like they're in a state of disarray, and you, you say, we're, we're going to finish the damn war in Vietnam... No matter how nuts we get, I mean, Scoop Jackson might literally talk about, like, like Scoop Jackson was nuts. And so he might, like, go a little too far when it comes to that. But, uh, hey, why not, man? Nixon Jackson 72, let's do it. It's very comforting. <laughs> um, yeah, my, I, I don't see any presidential candidate picking as a, as a vice presidential candidate someone who ran the other party's <laughs> nomination, right? Um, I don't know. Um... And, like, Nixon knows he's going to... I mean, this is kind of the same with Rockefeller. Like, he knows he's going to win this one. This is, like, a huge... Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not, because he still did the Watergate thing. Like, I don't I don't understand why Nixon, like, had to meddle with this election. He was very clearly right, yeah. going to be fine. Yeah. Well, he's going to get his way, is, mm-hmm. is kind of my point. Why, Why like, just to, like, screw over the Democrats? Mm-hmm. Just like, ha-ha, gotcha, I got yeah. one of yours. Yeah. Well, that brings us to my number one pick. But the thing is, like, he, he kind of, like, Jackson and Nixon were probably more similar than people realize. Because, mm. you know, Nixon did found the EPA, and Jackson was an environmental guy, too. But anyway, so, yeah. go yeah. on. Your number one pick. My number one pick, kind of in a similar vein, we talked about him a lot mm. um, as a Democratic running mate last time, is John Connolly. Mm-hmm. He was governor of Texas in the car when Kennedy was assassinated. He is now Secretary of Treasury under Nixon, and he's kind of the only person in his administration that Nixon actually seems to like, hmm. which is which is weird because he's a Democrat. You know, he's kind of fairly successfully engineered getting the U.S. off the gold standard in his short time as Treasury Secretary, and he uh, has kind of overseen these attempted and very stupid national price controls to combat the devaluation of the dollar that happens because of that. Connolly starts in 1972, Democrats for Nixon, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure Nixon just loves. And he's he's he is so involved and he's so ready. Mm-hmm. Like Nixon wants to steal the Kennedy angle. He like actually really likes Connolly. And Nixon like straight up apparently did want to put Connolly on the ticket. Mm-hmm. This like Nixon is so good that even Democrats are turning to him. Angle mm-hmm. is like. It just really sells this, like, national unity, universal election. I'm going to win all the states. Let's go. That's why he's my number one. Yeah, I also had Connolly as my number one. All right. For the same reasons. Yeah, and also similar reason to Jackson, where it's like, portray the Democrats as in disarray, twist right. the knife. People are bolting 
McGovern for Nixon. Yeah. yeah. Not not very common. And of course, the Kennedy angle. He was the man who was there when John Kennedy died. I still really like that angle. Yeah. And it's like Nixon is a very it Connolly speaks to something that is kind of unique to Nixon. It's like Nixon is this very like conflicted soul and he like kind of hates everyone, but he doesn't hate Connolly. Like I just yeah. I keep coming back to that. They seem like, like they were friends. Right. It's like it's like <laughs> and no one else appeared to be friends. Well, yeah. Bibi Rebozo and Nixon were also very close. <laughs> That's a story for another podcast. <laughs> Look it up though. Um, uh, we, we could <laughs> they, they would hold hands. I had a professor who had a very elaborate theory about how Nixon was gay. I don't know. And did he write thing. a book about it too? Yes, it's a very <laughs> look it up. Yeah, I, I just I like you know Nixon's. It's very conflicted, very dark, um, sad. He's kind of a sad boy president. Yeah. deep down, as it turns mm-hmm. out, and I think John Connolly. He, he likes yeah. he likes John Connolly and I just I, I like friendship just, just a good mental a, a good self care pick for me <laughs> right right I just want him to be okay yeah um, so uh, unusually Nixon actually did consider replacing Agnew on the ticket the moderates in the party and Nixon himself both wanted to kind of get rid of Agnew the moderates wanted Rockefeller as it turns out um, and Nixon wanted Connolly um, so I guess they compromised and just changed nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Any any thoughts about should should Nixon have gotten rid of Agnew? Oh, well, I mean, in hindsight, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know. But like Nixon knew. Everyone knew Agnew was yeah. kind of slimy. Yeah, and like I don't know like what he gave them that someone else couldn't. Like if you if they're worried about alienating his base, but you get rid of him and you pick some like I don't know. I think in general, like if no if the public doesn't know yet, then you don't want to bring attention to it by get like it's a very Streisand effect kind of thing. Right. Or it's like if you drop him, it's like well then why do they drop Agnew? And then they do some That's digging true. and they find out what's going on, and that might actually hurt you in the general election. You might win, you know, 400 electoral votes instead of 520 or whatever. I don't know. I think that math works out. I'm yeah. looking at a map right now. But So, I mean, I kind of get it, but I also, you know. But it's like Nixon's in this position to go from winning a very tight election to becoming, like, one of the biggest landslides of all time. Mm-hmm. And, like, what does Agnew change for him in that? I don't see that it changes anything. Yeah, no. It's like, kind of go for the jugular. All right. Should we hit the speed round? Sure. Anyone else left? On the Democrats, I would argue probably not. There's probably no one else yeah, who's, yeah. who's around. But, like, maybe Senate Majority Whip um, and West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd. I, I, I know what you're going to say, Mike. <laughs> He's a little racist. But, like, an establishment old-timey Democrat. Mm. Anyone on the Democrats? I, Because I, I, I almost put him on my one for Humphrey. James Hugh Joseph Tate, who's the mayor of Philadelphia. Yeah, I stumbled upon him when I was looking for like a Pennsylvania politician to put on the Humphrey ticket. Mm. You know, I don't know. He was governor of a big city for a while. He's from a big state. He appeased basically civil rights activists by by sort of like making sure that 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 black workers were hired on like city construction projects. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Republicans. I. <laughs> I I'm gonna suggest just. Massachusetts Republican Governor Francis Sargent or Massachusetts Republican Senator Edward Brooke. Just just go for the kill, Nixon. <laughs> just make McGovern the only candidate in history never to win a single fucking state. Just like, boom, 50-state strategy. Yeah. Go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have anybody. I'll go back to my Reagan thing from last episode. Mm. Where it's like, neutralize the threat. Yeah. Like, neutralize the hot upstart. And then also, we talked about that, that scenario that, that might prevent the Iraq war in that's, the last episode. That's true. <laughs> yeah. All, all right. Let's, let's give our concluding thoughts. If, if you could change the running mates, would you? I would. I mean, like, again, hindsight 2020, yes, I would change it for Nixon because it just removes the Agnew headache. 
but obviously it doesn't make much sense in real time. As far as McGovern, I mean, yes, I would not pick uh, <laughs> Thomas Eagleton because obviously he had to actually replace him in real time, and that right. didn't help him at all. Sergeant Driver, I just don't think that's a very good pick. Like, I don't, like, what, what does he give your ticket? I, I um, think he was better in 68. Yeah, but even, I don't know, he's, he's just kind of like a, he's a Kennedy, but you can't even, like, he's, his last name's not Kennedy's, or he's married to a Kennedy. So you can't even really, like, rely on that too much. I think he needed someone who felt a little more, like, down-to-earth and who had more of a proven record domestically and who just was a little more reassuring to uh, the center of the party. And you think that's Terry Sanford? I do. Yeah. I I agree. I also think McGovern should definitely (laughs) have uh, chosen someone else. Mm. All right, well, that's our show. You can find us everywhere podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. I've been Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. You can find all our stuff on thepostwriter.com. We write there. We post podcasts there. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Levito on Letterboxd at Ameramike. And we will catch you in our next episode on the 1976 showdown between Gerald Ford's pick of Bob Dole and Jimmy Carter's pick of Walter Mondale. <laughs>